Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today our guest is Julissa Arce, author, speaker, and social justice activist who focuses her work around immigrant justice and education equality. We talked today about Julissa's newest book, You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation, and the ways that Julissa is thinking about colorism, history, and the ideas of a united Latinidad. The Stacks Book Club pick for March is A Mercy by Toni Morrison, and we will be discussing the book on the podcast on March 30th with our guest, Imani Perry. If you like The Stacks and want more of it, please head to patreon.com slash The Stacks to join The Stacks Pack. You get perks like our bonus episodes, virtual book club, discounts on merch, and shout outs on this show. Speaking of shout outs, here are our newest members of The Stacks Pack. Becky Zoderman, Nicole, Catherine, Nikki Young, Katie Samlo, Taylor Harris, Lindsay Turner, Julia Erdlin, Kelsey, and Liza. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack and putting your money behind the work of this show. I know I say this every week, but please know there would be no podcast without the Stacks Pack. So if you like the Stacks, if you like what you're hearing every week, consider joining the Stacks Pack on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Stacks. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Julissa Arce. All right, everybody. I'm very excited. I'm joined today by Julissa Arce, who's the author of You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. Julissa, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of the show, so it's great to now be on this side. Oh my gosh, I'm honored. Anytime someone says that, I still get like butterflies. I forget that people listen. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So we always sort of start here. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell us about the book? Sure. So the book is a polemic sort of cultural criticism on the ways in which America asks immigrants and people of color to assimilate. And the second part of the book is about how do we reclaim our culture, our history, our identity that doesn't center on whiteness. Yeah. I'm so curious. I feel like this is maybe an obvious question, but I feel like maybe there's more there. I'm curious when and how you got the idea to actually write this book. So it wasn't like a light bulb went off in my head and it was like, oh, this is the book you have to write. You know, I think it Mm. was, it really was the course of the last like four or five years being on the road talking about my other two books, My Underground Mm -hmm. American Dream and Someone Like Me, where 
some of the questions that people would ask me, I would think, well, this is not the right way to ask this question. So like, for example, people would ask me, well, how come you stayed undocumented for such a long time, right? Because I was undocumented for 10 right. years. And in that question, I would just think, I, I didn't choose to stay undocumented, right? you know? Right. And I think there's this false idea that there is a right way to come to America. So mm -hmm. that was like one of the questions I wanted to answer in the book, right? And there were all of these types of questions that people would ask me that I would think there's an answer for this. And maybe I should write about these answers. Yeah. So, so, so partly it was that. Partly it was I have had a real craving to understand the history of my people in this country because I never learned that in school. And so I started just reading a lot of history books, a lot of um, sort of more academic books. And I was just fascinated with the history that I was learning for the first time in my life. And... I was really curious to synthesize that history in the context of the things that are happening in our country today. And right. so it sort of it's sort of like all of these things were happening. I was reading this history and I was like, there's something here that I really have to explore. And then it sort of just all came together when I sat down to write. I wanted to write about personal stories about the ways in which I dealt with assimilation mm. and the ways in which even though I did assimilate in many ways that still didn't give me belonging right. um, and then I thought okay well these personal stories are are interesting and they're powerful in their own right but how can I make these personal stories really tell bigger truths and so that's mm. when I started incorporating a lot of the history, a lot of the more sort of political and social commentary. Right. Um, and what we got was, you sound like a white girl. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes this book really special and different is how you incorporated so much history. Um, for people who don't know, aren't familiar with you and your work, you mentioned, you know, your people. Can you just be a little more specific so people know exactly what history we're talking about? Like, who's my people? <laughs> yeah. Well, like, uh, I know. I read the book. But yeah. I feel like people at home are like, well, who are the people? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, so there's a lot of specifically Mexican-American history, and they're more broadly. Latino history. But I do focus a lot on Mexican American history. One, because, you know, Mexicans were part of what is now the United States before it right. became the United States. And the wave of immigrants into the United States were first uh, Mexican Americans and then other, other Latin American uh, people followed. And there's also mentions of. Puerto Rican history, because Puerto mm -hmm. Ricans too have a very long history in the United right. States, given you know the colonization of Puerto Rico by the United States. So, you know, that's my people. But as I mentioned sort of in the in the introduction of the book, though this is a book that centers my experience and and our history, I definitely think that people who are not part of our community will will learn a lot from it, will find themselves in it. Yeah. And, you know, we'll learn some things that they didn't yeah. know before. I would say that I fall squarely in that category as, you know, I'm not, you know, Latina in any way that I know of, but <laughs> I saw myself a lot in your story. And I think like just the title of the book, You Sound Like a White Girl, it could be the title of my memoir as well. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much. Like, I think this is going to sound really crazy and maybe like a little dumb. And I'm, I apologize to everyone listening, but like uh, it had never dawned on me that there were black Mexicans. Oh, Yeah. Like it just, it had never, of course, like 
did I think that they just magically weren't brought to Mexico? Like, no. And I know, like, you know, I know there are Black Hondurans. I know there are Black Brazilians. I know there are Black Colombians. Like, for whatever reason, when I read that in your book, I had a moment of like, wow, I am an actual moron. And also, (laughs) why is this history totally excluded from any conversation? So I definitely think people who do not have the same cultural background as you will learn things, will see themselves, or will see, you know, see themselves either in relating to you or relating to maybe some of the questions that you were asked and things. So I think it's like a very inclusive book, but I appreciated that your audience also felt very clear. Like I know mm. I didn't feel like you were writing a book to like teach people. Like it yeah. felt very strong in a sense of like, this is about us. And this is, you know, I'm encouraging my people to take back some of our culture and our history and all of that. And I really, really liked that point of view. But kind of speaking about this idea of like having people who are included, who maybe aren't Latina or whatever, you talk about race in America being a binary between black Mm -hmm. and white. And I'm curious because you sort of say like, is there a place for us or whatever? And like my, and maybe this is because I am black. And so my lens is like sort of skewed, but I've always thought about America in that way. But also I've thought of binaries as like, you know, on a spectrum. Mm. And Mm. so I'm wondering like, how do you prefer to think about it that feels more inclusive to you or is a spectrum, you know, not, a, I, I don't know. I'm just sort of curious about your yeah. thinking around that. That was a yeah, lot. So, Sorry. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. There's, there, there, you definitely mentioned a lot. I want to come back <laughs> to some of the points that you made. Um, but on your question, and this is, you know, this is one of the, the hardest parts of the book that I wrestled with. Um, and I spent many, many months uh, mm. making sure that I wrote it in a way that was, that was, coherent, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the thoughts swirling in my mind were came on the page. So I say that because, you know, whatever I can say in this interview that we have together, this time that we have together, it's not going to be nearly as right. uh, eloquent as what I, as what I wrote. So I, I, you know, I encourage people to read the book so they can get this part the way that I wrote it. But to answer your question, this question came up for me since I was like in seventh grade, right? And I was learning about all this history mm-hmm. um, and it goes back to history because I was learning this history of the United States that was always told from a white point of view mm-hmm. and that included some black stories. Of course, those black stories were never told from the perspective of black people, right. but at least I I sort of saw them, right? Right, right. Even if, even if they weren't completely accurate. But then I was like, where were we? You know, right. I was just really curious to find out like where were Mexicans during the Civil War and where were Mexicans during the Civil Rights Movement and where were Mm -hmm. Mexicans when uh, the United States fought for its independence from from uh, England and were, you know, committing genocide against indigenous people. Like I was just like, where were we? And so that's really where this question of like, where do we fit in? Mm -hmm. Because it does feel as someone who is not white and as someone who is not black, that sometimes conversations about race do live in this binary. Right. And that there is no room for sort of more uh, perspectives. Right. Even though all of our experiences as people of color play into that binary. Why do you think that is? Do you have a theory as like why we exclude other voices? Well, so I really think that this 
binary is a framework of white supremacy because what happens is you know if you if you can only be there's this really funny meme that it's like this little latino kid walking down the road and then there's a fork on the road one side of the road leads to becoming a white supremacist and the other and the other road leads to acting black got it and and i saw this meme and i was like oh my god this is like this is in a very funny meme, like the way I've sometimes have felt about things, you know, in, mm-hmm. in that in that I think that this binary drives people to try to be as close in proximity to whiteness because somehow we might feel that that will offer us protection, mm. that that will give us humanity. Right. And I think that what that does is that it upholds white supremacy while at the same time we then play into the oppression of black people. Right. right? And so that's why I think it's so important to sort of not look beyond, and I'm very clear about this in the book, like this is not about looking beyond the black-white narrative in America because that's a very real narrative uh, that needs to continue to be, um, you know, studied and explored and, and discussed. Uh, so it's not looking, it's not about looking beyond, but it's about looking through, right? And trying to mm. make spaces. Um, one of the things that I mentioned is that, you know, I I don't want to be described as what I'm not, hmm. right? I want to be described by what I am. And so- I agree with that. I feel like so often people are like, oh, not white or not black. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah. Uh, It's tricky. And it's funny because even what you said about, not funny, but interesting, even what you mentioned about, like it hadn't dawned on you that there were like, um, you know, black Mexicans. And I mentioned in the book that, you know, of all the enslaved Africans that came, that were brought forcefully, a very large percentage of that, something like 90% were taken to the Caribbean and to Latin America. Yeah. So there are, there are, more black people that yeah. live in Latin America than do in the United States. Right. And I knew that about like Colombia. Like I think of Colombia as being almost a black country and same with mm. Brazil. But for mm-hmm. some reason. Oh, in Mexico. Me- like it was Mexico. Mexico. Was, yeah. Well, that's also Mexico's fault because sure. we have hidden that history. Right. It, it, it was just in the last few years that um, – that on the census, in the Mexican census, right. uh, that black Mexicans could assert their black identity on the census. You know, I mentioned in the book that the second president of Mexico was black and indigenous. Mm-hmm. But if you see portraits of him, you would never guess. You would right. never know that he was black because right. the portraits that were painted of him were literally whitewashed right right and so it's also our fault that that people don't know that and and we need to rectify that yeah I think so this kind of I was going to get to this later but I feel like we're firmly in the place to talk a little bit about colorism um Mm. in the Latinx community and and sort of about because I think one of the things that I have I think I have known and I think you know maybe it's different in different communities but like as a black person and I'm mixed I have a white mother and a black father so I have thought about color a lot you know it's like one of those things that's part of my experience but I have friends who are you know from different places in Latin and Central America who have struggled a lot with that conversation about race versus like uh, nationality 
And I know it's really complicated because race is a social construct. And so it gets weird and it gets confusing. But like oftentimes I remind people like you can you can be white and be Cuban. You can mm-hmm. be white and be Brazilian. Like and and I always use the example of like, look, no one's calling Ted Cruz a person of color. You know, like right. he's he's Cuban or or Marco Rubio or whatever. We all can see that and be like, that's a white man whose family is from Cuba. And so I'm wondering sort of like in the book, you talk about like people who are who are white still claiming that person of color identity. Mm-hmm. And you use the example of Selena, who is, you know, fair skinned, but, you know, I would argue is not white in the same ways that Marco Rubio is. But maybe that's also because I know his politics in a way that makes me disgusted. Yeah. But so I'm wondering sort of like how you're, you know, and I know you're still reckoning with this, which is very much in the book, mm-hmm. how you reckon with the idea of like white Latin American uh, people, Caribbean people, et cetera, claiming or not claiming the term people of color. Yeah. I don't go into this much in the book about, you know, people claiming. Well, I I mean, I do. I do in some ways. So. Selena, we're talking here about Selena Quintanilla, you know, bitty bitty bomb bomb Selena. Of course, not, yes. Um, oh, know, not rare beauty, not rare beauty. Oh, not Gomez. Uh, Selena Gomez, right. <laughs> sorry, yeah. yeah, sorry. And I actually say, you know, there are people who are making the argument that Selena Quintanilla is quote unquote white passing. And that just like, I don't like, agree makes with me that. me fall off my chair because I'm like, in no planet in the universe, is Selena Quintanilla white? Like I she agree. was never confused with a white woman, you know, ever. I do think that there are many Latinos who are white, you know, who have blonde hair and very light skin and colored eyes, who when they immigrate to the United States, um, those that do, feel like when they cross the border, that gives them a different identity. Mm. And in some ways, I understand, you know, if you speak with an accent, you might be discriminated. You know, if somebody looks at your last name and they've never met you, uh, they might pass you up for an interview when they don't know what you look like. Right. Sure. Um, And I don't think that people who are white Latinos are any less Latino. Right? Right. They're still Latinos. They still hold the culture. They still hold the values, the traditions. But my point is that they are not denied their humanity based Mm -hmm. on the color of their skin. Right. And so I think that these two things are happening. One is, and I challenge and encourage (laughs) white Latinos to fully grasp their whiteness Mm -hmm. and in the ways in which they benefit from from white privilege. Mm. Because I have found many Latinos to stop short of fully confronting that in themselves. And at the same time, I think that the conversation sometimes goes to places like trying to call Selena Quintanilla a white woman, right. which is just like, to me, it's incomprehensible. I'm that, with you. That somebody would say that. Um, I've never heard, I'd never even heard that until I saw it in your book, to be honest. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it, you know, so I think part is like, and, and I've met so many like brown Latinos who maybe are a little bit lighter skin, but they're not white. Right. You know, but I feel like people have guilted them into being like, you can't call yourself a person of color because you're like, you know, slightly lighter skin. Like, I mean, you know, me, for example, right. I am an indigenous person. 
I have never been confused for someone white. Right. Uh, but kind of going back to that uh, black and white binary, it's like there's people who want to force me to be like, you're white. And I'm like, no, I am not white. Right. And I think that there is something beautiful about asserting, because I think for a long time, many people in the Latino community wanted to be white. Sure. And wanted to be seen as white. And now there are many of us who are saying and asserting our own identity as Latinos. So it's very complicated. Yeah. And there isn't one right answer um, to any of this. But I think that the more conversations that we have about it, the more we might figure it out. You know, an identity is something very personal, like how people choose to identify themselves. I mean, I even talk about the words that we use to describe the Latino that was community. It can cause so much controversy. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I mean, again, like race in America and everywhere is a construct. And I think, especially in America, like we think so much of, like you said, the white black binary, but also, you know, in America to be black is to have, you know, one drop of blackness in you. Yeah. And so I, and so it's interesting when I, um, I'm, when I'm reading about or talking to people who aren't black and they are from other groups, whether it's Asian groups, Latina groups, whatever, and they have the ability to sort of decide some of this stuff in a yeah, way that like for black people, people it's different it's so different like yeah because you know of course there's like colorism and it's like oh she's really light you know she's not really black or whatever but like it historically in this country to be yeah. a black person is to you know have one I think it's one sixty one thirty second. I think if you have one so I think that's like great 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 grandparent or maybe four greats I'm terrible at this but it's far <laughs> back and like yeah. you see pictures of people who are you know one thirty second black and it's like that's a white person today that's yeah. a straight up white person but like yeah. they were enslaved and so it's just an interesting thing as we talk about like like you're saying identifying yourself and getting to choose your identity and how that works and what choices you make yeah you know for for whatever reasons. Yeah. Um, and and I do talk about, you know, I do I do talk about that in the book that we in the Latino community who are not black Latinos, who are not, you know, indigenous in the sense of like growing up in an indigenous community. Right. right? Okay. That we also have to confront the privileges that we have. Sure. And I certainly am very aware that my experience is completely different, you know, than other people. So and I try to be careful not to, like, I can only speak from my own experience, right. you know? Like, I can't, like, try to write about anybody else's experience, right. even, like, other Latinos. And and I say that, you know, this is my experience, my perspective, like, yeah. not that of an entire community. Yeah, I think you do a really good job of sort of centering your experience in the ways that you talk about, you know, what you've gone through and what you've found to believe as well as like mixing in the history like we talked about. I think it, it's very clearly like you, your voice, your opinions, but also, you know, you've contextualized it, which I really appreciate as a mm -hmm. reader. You sort of touched on this and I, I really want to ask a little bit. I know that um, the language about what what you call yourselves, um, whether mm -hmm. it's Latine, Latinx, Latino, Hispanic. Will you talk a little bit about sort of 
I didn't even realize there was a huge conversation about it until I started listening to uh, Code Switch and they do like a whole thing on like Latinidad. But I'm just I'm wondering if you would kind of share with the audience what what the issue is, what the question is and why it is so difficult to come up with a name. Well, I think part of the reason it's so difficult to come up with a name is because we do all have, you know, we first of all, we come from like very different, distinct national identities right right? like like you know there's mexican puerto rican and colombian and dominican and salvadoran and honduran and when we live in those places when i lived in mexico i was mexican i i didn't think of myself as like latina or hispanic you know and i think all of these words are our efforts to assert our own identity Mm. that is distinct and separate from other identities and we just you know depending on the word for example um there's a big controversy around the word latinx right because people think that the x is sort of somehow disrespectful to like spanish and that we're trying mm. to like anglicize uh our, our the spanish our language. language the spanish language yeah. right you know but but then there are like non-binary people who latinx is the word that they like and that they use. There's Latin. And so I think each of the words tells us a truth about who we are and how we came to be. Each word also falls short Mm. of fully encapsulating everybody's identity and experience. And I think the most important thing is to choose whatever word fits you Mm. and to respect the words that other people choose to describe themselves. Yeah, I describe myself as Latina because I am a cisgendered woman. And so Latina fits me, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I have friends who like to be called Latinx. So I talk to them in the context of being Latinx, right? right. So there isn't one single word. I don't think we're going to, I don't see us like coming together to be like, okay, this is the word for right. everybody, you know? <laughs> right. Um, but some people find Hispanic to be offensive well I see the thing is the thing about hispanic so <laughs> hispanic was supposed to be a word that uh, for people who speak spanish so in that sense spanish people people from spain who are european who are many cases white um they are hispanic right you know but I think that word Hispanic to me feels this sort of like respectable word, like mm. this this mm-hmm. word that people use because it's more respectable. It's like African American because because it centers the whiteness in our community, right? Mm-hmm. It centers sort of this like mythical Spanish ancestor mm-hmm. somewhere down the line, right? And so I don't like using it anymore. For a long time, I did use Hispanic, especially when I lived in Texas. Mm. You know, when I lived in Texas, I was Hispanic. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and until I started to realize, like, oh, shit, this, using this word to me felt like I was doing with my, what, what, my, what many people in my family have done, which is to say, oh, you know, your grandpa was Spanish and he had mm. blue eyes and it's like, mm, no, he didn't. <laughs> right. That white supremacy um, popping back up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I think that there are some Spanish people, people from Spain that want to be Latino or be yeah. Latina. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
I have many Spanish friends who I love dearly, <laughs> but I do not think that they are Latinos because right. Latinos are people who have roots in Latin America. Right. And if you're from Spain, the only route you have to Latin America is that your ancestors colonized us right. and committed right. genocide and ruined us. Right. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. You are so, a, a, a conquistador, if you will. Yeah, exactly. So like if you want to be Latino and those are the roots you want to claim, um, you know, but you see it even like what happened with um, Javier Bardem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where he's like, I don't know. That would take us down in a different direction. So well, maybe I made, won't talk yeah. about Javier It Bardem. made me think about uh, Alec Baldwin's wife. Hillary, mm. Hillary, Hilary, and now she's Ilaria. Ilaria. She used to be my yoga teacher and she was Hillary. I just want to go on the record. People oh know this story. God, I know amazing. her from a long time ago in New York. But her whole thing of like, oh, I'm a Spaniard. But like part of it was that there was some sort of like um, fetish, fetishization mm -hmm. of like being a person of color almost. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really interesting. But it's like even if you were trying to be Spanish, like yeah, you're you, still you white. still would not be a person of color. You're still white. You're Spanish. You're Spanish. Like you're yeah. European then. But what's so interesting is like um, I was I don't know if you're familiar with Imani Perry, but she wrote this book South to America and she talks about all these different places and she talks about Florida. And one of the things that she says, which again had never dawned on me, is she's like, we have racialized the Spanish language, which means that people from Spain, white European people who are Sp from Spain, somehow mm -hmm. get to be racialized as well and have like the exoticism of being a per like being something that they're not. She's like, they're just white yeah. people. They're just like the French. Yeah. They're just from Spain. Like, and it's just such yeah. an interesting thing that we in America have turned some of the most famous colonizers into like this ethnic group. It's like, yeah, no, they're white. They did the yeah, same shit England did. Yeah. In New York, when I lived in New York, it was new to me coming from Texas that people would, would use Spanish to describe Latinos. Mm, you know, we're like, yeah. oh, that person's Spanish. And it's like, no, they speak Spanish. Right. But they're not Spanish. Right. You know, Spanish people are people from, from Spain. Spain. <laughs> yeah. Those are Spanish people. Um, but it was interesting to see how how often that word is used in, in New York. Yeah. I in Texas I didn't really see it used. You know, right. in Texas our version of that was Hispanic. Right, 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 right. <laughs> okay. I want to talk about one kind of more big topic from the book, then we'll take a break. So part of your story is that you immigrated to America. Um, you talk about how your visa went up. You were here undocumented for about 10 years. And I think like I'm always fascinated by the ways in which people who are born in America do not understand immigration mm. and what it means to be undocumented and why someone would be like you talked about earlier. And I'd love, you know, you need to, people need to read the book because you go into such detail and we will not be able to even like scrape the surface. But I want to talk about what you call the lie of citizenship when you're brown in America. Mm -hmm. um, will you sort of explain that to people who maybe are listening who are American born or who immigrated through white ancestors or whatever? Because I think it's really fucking different. Yeah. Well, so one big headline here is that immigration, naturalization, citizenship laws have been driven by race. Mm -hmm. 
more than any other factor. Always. From the very beginning. In 1790, when Congress came up with the first laws of the United States, it said that only white, free white men could naturalize, could become citizens. You know, so from day one, it was race that was driving who was worthy of American citizenship, right? Mm. That was followed by the Chinese Exclusion Act. That was followed by, you know, later not just excluding Chinese people, but like all Asians in general, followed by deportations of Mexican-Americans, many of whom were U.S. citizens during times of economic downturn. So it's always been driven by race. And they and it continues to this day to be driven by race. Mm-hmm. So having said all that, you know, I didn't stay undocumented because I wanted to. Right. Because being undocumented is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Everything you do is dictated by your immigration status. Everything you can and cannot do, the things you do anyway, and then are accused of breaking the law. Mm -hmm. There is no path for citizenship for people. I mean, I became a U.S. citizen because my husband's a U.S. citizen, and so I was able to naturalize through him, and also because I came here with a visa. Mm. Had I crossed the border, even if I was married to a U.S. citizen, I might not be able to fix my immigration status. So this line that people often refer to, you know, like get in the back of the line, do it the right way. The line is a myth. It doesn't exist. We need new immigration laws to create that line so people can get in a line and go through the process of naturalization. So, So, yeah, I mean, there is no... There is no path to citizenship for many people. And depending on where you come from, you treat it very differently. I mean, I think what's happening in Ukraine with the invasion of Vladimir Putin and the creation of of Ukrainian refugees, you can just see it, how how differently uh, Ukrainian refugees are being treated and how they're being welcomed and how they're being spoken about in the media. And it's a perfect example of depending on what you look like, you will either be treated as a refugee or as an invader. Right. right? right. And the way Criminal. that we're treating... Right. And the way that we're treating Ukrainian refugees should be an example of how we treat all right. refugees. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think someone, some meme was like showing a picture of Ukrainian refugees and then what we saw with the Haitian refugees and mm-hmm. the people on horses. And yeah. obviously, you know... For years and years and years and years predating Donald Trump, you know, I just want to say that because as much as I hate him, he's not the only one. Um, right. The ways that people from Latin America have been treated at the border for years and years. Um, okay, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? 
With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. I think we might touch more on the book, but I do want to make sure we take some time to talk about your process, which I always Mm. love and find to be a really fun thing. So you're so busy. You are one of those people that has like a million hyphens in your name. Like it's like Julie Sarce, who activist, writer, author, speaker, boom, boom, boom. How did you find time to write this book? Well, so I do do a lot of things, but to me, all of these things are sort of related. You know, they're, they're, um, they're just branches of the same tree and it obviously helps a lot to get an advance to give mm-hmm. you the space and time to write a book. Right. You know, I don't know how else you could do it, how <laughs> else somebody could do it because I I can't imagine sort of having a full-time job and then coming home at 6 or 7 p.m. at night to sit down and write. Right. You know, that's and some people do that and it's like it's so it's so amazing that they can do that and it also it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. So I took months off from pretty much like everything else I was doing to do the research, to sit down and write. Also, I started I started writing, like I actually sat down on my computer to write March 2020. Oh, wow. So writing <laughs> during lockdown, right. in some ways it was like, well, you can't do anything else. You know, you can't be, you're not going to be on the road doing speaking engagements right now because everything's canceled. It's like, right. so it, it sort of, gave me the ability to really, really focus. But yeah, I think it's just, you know, and then the way that the the book process works, I worked on a proposal, so I had to take time off for that. But then there were months when it was, you know, my agent was just sort of like pitching right. the book. 
right? And during that time, I was doing something else. And when I finally got my contract and I started writing, like uh, writing a first draft, and then I would send it off to my editor. And then during that time that I was waiting to get feedback and things, I would work on other projects. Right. right? And then I get it back. I have to work on edits. So I take a pause from the other projects. Um, so it's, I almost find it like it's a, like it's like cooking a meal. Yeah, know, I was just going to say that's what it sounds like. And like when you put something in the oven, then you can start working on things like yeah. on your salad or chopping things or whatever. Yeah. For whatever thing you're doing. And, you know, once everything's done, um, maybe I'll start working on dessert. You know, so it's sort of like, yeah, it's sort of just like cooking a meal and just finding the right time to when things are in the oven. Yeah. Time to do other things. Yeah, I love that analogy. Okay, how do you like to write? How many hours a day? How often? Music or no? Are you having snacks and beverages? Where are you? Do you have rituals? Kind of paint the picture. I have about 10 different drinks a day. Yes. Oh my God. Talk about them. I'm so happy. Love Coffee, that you're here. Tea, LaCroix. You What's know, your flavor of water. LaCroix? Oh my gosh. I love um, the watermelon LaCroix. Oh, okay. And then there's also one that's called Waterloo. I don't uh, know that one. It's like a Texas brand, I think, but oh, they okay. sell it at Costco. Oh, okay. And that has really good, like, orange flavor okay. and, like, blackberry okay. flavor or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. So I just like having, like, a plethora of drinks to okay. choose from. I, in the last year, have really more written, like, in my home office um, because now I actually have a home office. Congratulations. So, thank you. So I get to so I write here. My first two books, I wrote a lot of it at coffee shops, okay. and I really love coffee shop writing. I wrote a lot of it on the plane. Okay, like I love writing on a plane because mm. I just put my headphones on, listen to some music, and like really focus on just writing. Because there's like, you know, what else are you gonna do? Right, there's like exactly. nowhere to get distracted. I'm not gonna get up and decide that. I need to do the dishes right this second right, or, right, right, right. you know, that I need to clean my entire house before right. I write the next <laughs> sentence, uh, which happens when I'm home. I really enjoy writing with music in the background, even though it just kind of becomes it like sometimes my Spotify or my Apple music or whatever will just like cut off and I don't mm. even notice because right. now I'm focused. Um, what kind of music? All kinds of music. I mean, okay. my, yeah, I mean, I listen to music in Spanish I listen to I, I actually listen to a lot of um scores okay like movie scores yeah yeah and I've so heard like this the, a lot yeah yeah it's because it's just it's awesome yeah I highly recommend it you're like um, a prolific writer it's like the battle scene and you're like da, 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 yeah, yeah. Get it in. look at that <laughs> sentence killing it yeah the Game of Thrones the Game <laughs> of Thrones score epic so good also the succession score oh yeah so good oh yeah yeah and then in terms of like number of hours and things I don't you know there there are times when I write for eight hours and then there are mm. times when I write for half an hour and that's all I got for the day yeah. um are you a write every day person or no when I'm writing a book yes okay right now no no <laughs> no <laughs> you're like waiting for my book to come out gonna take yeah right now I'm writing emails to everybody being like Support my book. Yeah. Buy my book. Yes. <laughs> Send totally. out a tweet about my book. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so in your book, you talk about your past life working in something financial. You know, I don't understand that stuff. <laughs> How did you know you wanted to be a writer or to make the switch to leaving that and doing something more on the creative side? Mm -hmm. 
when I was a little girl, I used to write stories and I used to write poetry and I used to perform. Uh, like I, I would write little plays and then make all my cousins <laughs> perform my plays at, at like family functions. So when I was, since I was little, I've always really liked writing. I've always really liked telling stories. And I, then as I was growing up, writing in my journal was like, I used to write in my journal every day. And that's where I could be the most honest mm -hmm. because I, I, could, I could take away all the layers of pretending mm -hmm. um, because it was just for me. Nobody was ever going to read that. And I could be honest about everything. And most importantly, I could be honest about myself. Mm. Know, in these journals. Mm -hmm. So uh, writing was always an outlet for me and reading was always an outlet for me. One of the biggest things that drove me to Wall Street was the money. Sure. Right? Like, where can I make the most money? Because I wanted to like be able to take care of my family and my parents who were back in Mexico. There was all these like personal reasons why I just needed to have a lot of money. Um, and I was good at finance. Like I've, I was always good at math. And so I was good at it. I enjoyed the time I was there, but there was always something that would, you know, just something that would feel I'm supposed to be doing something else. Mm. Like I'm supposed to be doing something else. Like this isn't it for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And then I had, I had a really incredible opportunity to write my first book uh, because of this Bloomberg Business Week article that was written about my life that got a lot of traction. And then the woman, Lisa Leshny, who's my agent now, um, she had reached out and said, like, do you want to write a book? And I'm like, mm. yes, I do. <laughs> and I went back and I looked at some journals. And in my journal, I had said, one day I'm going to write a book. Mm. And all this shit that I went through is going to be for something. And I had outlined the chapters mm. that I was going to write. Wow. And it, those chapters, I was like, man, these chapters were really good descriptions. I'm going to use that. <laughs> Yeah, and then once I started writing that book, I, I it just became clear to me that this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm supposed to write. I'm supposed to tell stories. Right. Um, write this second. I can't imagine how I'm ever going to write another book. <laughs> <laughs> you will. Because you will. I am exhausted, and I and this book took a lot out of me. But I know one day soon I'll you'll be ready again. Be ready again. Yeah, you got to take the time to decompress a little bit, and then. You'll know. This is my one of my favorite questions. And you sort of talk about this in the book, which I appreciated. But what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? God. Itinerary. Oh, that's a really itinerary. hard word. Yeah. Yeah. I, is it an E or an I? I right. I think I think it's an I. I'm a terrible yeah, speller. Like, so itinerary I never cannot spell hors d'oeuvres. Oh yeah, the I French don't know words, how to spell hors Get a grip! <laughs> like I, I don't speak French. I cannot spell in French. I can barely spell in English. And yeah, hors yeah, is hard. The, yeah, those two words. Come those to are mind. good ones. You actually make such a great point in the book about um, Spanish because, like, you talked about in the second half of the book about a lot about reclaiming, um, mm -hmm. and that's sort of like the thesis of the second half. And you talk about you know people who say to you either why don't you speak Spanish or not to you, but to people who are, yeah. you know, descendants of pe people who speak Spanish uh, immigrants. And then you also talk about how people are like, Oh, I'm learning Spanish because it's such a good thing to have on my resume or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you have this point where you're like, no one asks 
children or descendants of Polish immigrants, why they don't speak Polish or like what. And I just mm-hmm. I thought that was just such an interesting point, which goes back to, I think, the re- racialization of Spanish yeah. um, and the white supremacy, of course. I mean, it, it, doesn't it always go back to white supremacy? I feel like. Yes. It's white supremacy in the patriarchy. Yeah. It's literally like every answer on every quiz. It's like, why do we do this in America? Well, is it have to do with the patriarchy or white supremacy or bonus points for both? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I did love that. I did love thinking about, yeah, I have never heard anyone say to a like child of Italian immigrants, why don't you speak Italian or whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah. What parts of the book came easily for you and what parts were more difficult to write? Hmm. I feel like this whole entire book was difficult to write. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The whole book was difficult to write because it was a departure from what I have written in the past, which is memoir. Right. Right. And um, the voice that I used to write my memoirs was very different than the voice that I used to write. You sound like a white girl. Mm -hmm. But there were sections that flowed more easily even if they were difficult to write I think the 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 sections that I really struggled with I mentioned earlier were the sections where I was talking about reclaiming our identity Mm -hmm. like what is my race those parts were were difficult to write because I was still trying to make sense of them even as I was writing right like some of the other parts of the book I sort of already had conclusions mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. mind mm-hmm. that I wanted to I wanted to take readers on this journey to this conclusion that I already knew what it was. You know, I already right. knew where we're going. Where with those sections, even as I was writing, new things were coming up for me. Mm. You know, even as I was doing research, new things would come up for me. And so I had to write and rewrite and then write again. Right. And then finally my editor was like, okay, we, we have to like turn this in. <laughs> You're done. You need to take a, yeah. take a, take a break, kid. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, so yeah, those, those, those were hard because I didn't have a conclusion in my mind already. Right. And right. I was trying to find it as I was writing. Yeah. For people who love You Sound Like a White Girl, what are some books you might recommend to them that are maybe in conversation with what you did? Mm, yeah. So here are some of the books that I read to for research on the book. There was Manifest Destinies by Laura Gomez. There was Finding Latinx by Paola Ramos. Then there was, you know, books like How the Irish Became White. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a book called Working Towards Whiteness. There was uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Mm -hmm. There is a novel that just came out um, called uh, A Ballad of Love and Glory. Mm -hmm. And it's a historical fiction novel set during the Mexican-American War. Mm -hmm. And I think it really explores this part of American history that we gloss over, though it is an incredibly important piece of history because it was the first time that the United States ever invaded another country and like occupied the capital of Mexico. And it, I mean, it's, it's incredible. And, and it's kind of really cool to learn some of that history through this like historical novel. That's like a war story, but it's also like a love story and there's like really sexy scenes in it. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing novel. 
Let's see. I mean, I read. I mean, I read so many more books, but I think those are a good place to start. <laughs> I feel like one of the books that you reference is the Paul Ortiz. Um, oh yes, thank you for reminding yeah, me of that. that yes, one comes up a bunch. Yes, a Latinx uh, and African American history of the United States by Paul Ortiz. Yeah. Yes, like completely blew my mind mm-hmm. to learn of all this history that I didn't know. But more importantly, it wasn't just the history, but the solidarity between groups Mm. that is never talked about Mm -hmm. and therefore we think we've always been in conflict right when that's not the that's not true like we've come to make like different groups of people have come together in such beautiful and respectful ways in the past Mm -hmm. uh that we could really learn a lot from yeah yeah what do you hope people will keep in mind as they read your book that i'm not perfect I love that. Okay, here's my last question for you. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? My dad. Mm. Yeah. I I really wish he could read it. I mean, I could wish he, he could read. I I wish just I just wish he could be here, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, but I especially wish he could read this book because a lot of the conversations, you know, my dad like he didn't have like a whole big education. Like, it's not like he was reading books about history or whatever, but he was always like a very smart, very curious person. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I had a lot of conversations with him that he, you know, he would try to make jokes and, and make them funny. But, um, but I, but I remember it's not, it's not in, you sound like a white girl. It's in one of, it's in my memoir, but I came to visit my parents in the U S one time. And my dad took me to the um, Capitol in Austin. Mm. And, you know, I was like, like, I'm going to stop calling, you know, I'm going to stop being me. If one day I don't take back Texas for Mexico, like I was like nine years old. Oh my God. Revolutionary. <laughs> I love it. And my dad was just like, you know, like he was just like so encouraged and he was like, yeah, like one day you will do that. Mm. And um, I think he'd be really proud of this book. I love that. All right, everyone. You're listening. The book has been out for a total of 24 hours. As you're listening, go get this book. You sound like a white girl. You can get it anywhere you get your books. There are links to everything we talked about today in the show notes, including a link to get this book from bookshop.org to support local bookstores. And of course, Julissa. Um, Julissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, everybody, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Julissa for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Amelia Posanza for helping to make this interview possible. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for March is A Mercy by Toni Morrison. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, March 30th with Imani Perry. If you love this show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 